Speaking of spoiled, we were lavished upon yesterday, I think, uh, this weekend um, at the fall festival. Appreciate all the good food and the games and the crafts, and it was very well thought out. I think everything went very well. Uh, I enjoyed everything except um, one thing, and that is uh, I didn't win in bingo. And that kind of hurt my feelings a little bit because we played a lot of games, and I came so close, but I just didn't win in bingo. Um, But other than that, everything went really well, and I know that you guys had a good time. We're going to be in Revelation chapter 12 this morning. It's going to take us a little while to get there, and a lot of today's uh, message will be somewhat introductory because I want to just kind of... um, just think about where we are in life. Think about what's going on in the world. Uh, think about what we're, what we're learning and what we will learn in Revelation and the chapters to come. But you know that <clears throat> in the book of Revelation, there are three distinct series of judgments that are dispatched in, in, in a series of sevens. And we've already seen the seven seals, the wraths that are released as a result of the seven seals. And we have seen the seven trumpets. Uh, We will soon see the seven wraths from the bowls. And along with this in Revelation, John treats us or shares with us the visions that he sees in the unseen realm, the spiritual realm. So we get this perspective from heaven. And he describes them in terms that we wouldn't use to describe ordinarily. It's it's apocalyptic, but he treats us to these visions of heaven, and sometimes they're beautiful visions. And sometimes he takes us up and 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 he envisions what's happening in the unseen realm, and we see the saints of God and all the beautiful creatures of heaven that are just bowing before him, lifting their voices in praise, Adoring the Lamb of God. But we also are treated to or become privy to things that are happening in the unseen realm that are the work of Satan. And we see the malice and and the destruction, lives taken, lives destroyed, evil perpetrated. So we see the beautiful parts of the unseen uh, world, but we also see the ugly parts of the unseen world. These things that are happening that we can't see with the physical eye. God is bent on absolute good. Satan is bent on absolute evil. And earth and mankind is kind of the battleground of this. This uh, battle that rages. And today we're going to see some of the landscape of that battleground. Um, We're going to be introduced to some new characters, or well, not necessarily new for you, but new characters for us as they're described in Revelation anyway. Uh, We'll be looking at the dragon, we'll be looking at the woman, and we'll be looking at the beast, and the false prophet, and the 144,000, and uh, angelic heralds there, and also the son of man, and these will be colorful chapters, chapters 12 through 14 will be explaining these characters and how they uh, interact with the world that we live in. They will show very clearly the battle that rages. 
So the forces or, or revelation reveals a lot about wrath. It's very much a book about wrath because you have God's wrath, but you also have Satan's wrath on mankind. And as I said, there is a sense in which humans are in the middle of it all. As God's creatures, we're in the middle of it all, but we are not uh, innocent bystanders. We are very much participants in this battle. We're participants in the kingdom of God that's bent on good, and we are and can be participants in Satan's kingdom depending on our actions, depending on our thoughts. And it's those choices and those thoughts and the actions that we take here in Middle Earth, if you will, that actually determine our destiny. Who will we worship? Who do we adore? What is our life about? What do we want to live for? It comes out in, the, in our actions and our choices. And that's what it depends on. The, our destiny doesn't depend on how good we can be while we're in this world. It depends on what we believe in. It depends on whose we are. And ultimately, who we decide to worship as the one that is the only one worthy of our lives and our worship. Chapter 12 emphasizes the wrath of Satan and also you'll see the defeat of Satan. Um, Just kind of as pre-introduction here, Five times Satan is counter-reacted and he's defeated by the triune God. In verse 5, the devil attempted to devour the male child, but God snatched him up and took him up to heaven to his throne. Verse 9, Satan fought against Michael and his angels, but he lost. Verses 6 and 14, we'll see the dragon pursued the woman, but God prepared a place for her in the desert to keep her safe. Verses 15 through 16, the serpent wanted the woman to drown in a torrent, but the earth swallowed the river by God's provision. And Satan lost when he waged war against the woman's offspring, who kept on obeying God's commands instead of forsaking God's commands, and they held on to their testimony of Jesus as God and Savior. We'll see that in verse 17. So there's a sense in which as terrifying as this chapter is, a Satan in the end is a five-time loser, you might say. But this war that we'll see between Satan and the woman reminds us of the spiritual warfare that was introduced to us or entered into human history way back in the very first of the book, very first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. And you will remember that uh, Eve sinned in the garden. She disobeyed the Lord and Adam sinned with her. And the Lord was not happy with that and he issued consequences in the form of curses. And one of the curses that were issued upon the man and the woman and the beast or the dragon or the serpent was that there will be enmity between you, Satan, and the offspring of the woman. And we lose sight of that fact a lot of times, but the world that we live in is that curse being played out. We, we face it every day of our lives. There's enmity between the offspring of the woman and the serpent. And so it was in the garden that it all started. It's a, it's, it's a painful battle. It's a bloody battle. 
This chapter that we will look at here, chapter 12, will require two sermons. Most of this morning will be, we'll, we'll, we'll look at a little bit of the text, but a lot of it will be just kind of introductory here, and then we'll finish it next time. Um, I'm, but I want to read the whole chapter. There's 17 verses here, just so we can get the whole flavor of what John wants us to know or what he's seeing and what we're up against because we're reading about ourselves in a sense here in this chapter as well. Revelation 12, and a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And then another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman. And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. On those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. So I want to kind of just lay kind of a, a foundation for this great battle and this description that John has given us here. Because this is a real 
this is a big picture text. I mean, he's taking the whole world, the whole universe, I should say, into consideration, not just the physical world, but also the spiritual world. And one of the things that I have really grown to appreciate about the, the book of Revelation is how it, it reveals things from heaven's perspective. It's not just God's Word, but it's God's Word from heaven's perspective. And it tells us the nitty-gritty of the things that are going on that otherwise we would not know and, and could not know. We might have inklings of these things, but the Lord reveals them to us. And uh, for lack of better words, it's not fake news. It's what's really happening in the world. We're getting a, a bird's-eye view. We're getting a very clear and, and accurate view of not specifics, but the big picture. I think it speaks personally more accurately than the secular commentaries that we are constantly confronted with, the talking heads of our world, and there are many of them in the voices. I think Revelation's perspective on, on life and the world and how it works and the things that we experience, the, the good and the bad and the pain and the suffering, are much more accurate than what we hear from modern news or on the, re- on the radio. So it's, it's things on God's terms and not man's. Revelation teaches that God is the ultimate source of all things. He is behind all things. He's blameless. He doesn't sin. He doesn't commit evil. There's no malice in Him. He doesn't wish evil on anyone. But He is behind sovereignly reigning and governing all the workings and everything that takes place. He's an incredible God. Now sadly, I think modern uh, society rarely, if ever, considers something that's very, very important from the perspective of heaven, and that is the spiritual ramifications, the spiritual consequences of the things that are happening in our lives every day, the things that we read about or hear about on the news, the things that we Google. All of these things that are transpiring before our very eyes have spiritual ramifications. And we think about, um, you know, the economy that's struggling today. We get things just from physical perspectives or just from our own thoughts and about things. But as we, as we just think about um, the, the, the current economic woes, as we think about tribal warfare in Africa, as we think about the unrest in the Middle East, as we think about the power struggle between the, the world's powers of, of, the, of the USA and China, we think about terrorism in the Middle East, we think about plagues and diseases that that um, are rampant around the globe and the world. We hear about all of these things, and we're often left with only human explanations or scientific explanations or how sad it is. But what always seems to be missing for the most part is what I'll call the providence of God, the sovereign hand of God that is behind all of these things that take place. And we learn in Ecclesiastes, though things often might seem random, Absolutely everything that transpires is packed with meaning, divine meaning. The problem is when we fail to take into consideration the providence of God, the reality of the unseen powers, then we're uh, we're not really being given the whole perspective to chew on and to make decisions of our own. If we're only given half of what's happening, 
though that might be accurate, we're not giving the other half, then how can we make proper conclusions about what's happening in the world and therefore we can't grow in the areas of wisdom that we need to grow in? So in other words, part of doing history, part of reporting on history and what's happening, uh, in, in order for it to be properly considered, the providence of God, the hand of God, needs to be considered. What is God saying? Is this what's happening in my life? Is this God's blessing? Is, this, is God chastising me or us or a nation or the world for something? What is happening? How does this impact God's big plan of redemptive history? What is God speaking to me in all of this? Is this just a test? Is God trying to sanctify me in an area or a stronghold? What are you doing, Lord? And as believers, of course, we always wrestle with these things. But that's because we have the perspective that God has given us of the things that take place in the unseen and the spiritual realms. But they have to be taken into consideration, right? Now, I know that believers don't always agree on the things that happen in the current events. We don't always, we're not always in agreement, well, that's God's judgment. Oh, wait a minute, that's God's blessing. But we still have to wrestle with these things because they are important and there are messages in them. And I know that God rarely speaks distinctly, but he does speak uh, loudly in the sense of one way or another, all things happen so that we will glorify the Lord, so that we will look to God, so that we will seek God. We, we know the big picture here. I kind of, you know, Corky preached several um, messages on Job this year. And I like Job's response to things that happen in the world. And this godly man, this father of many children, this husband, he made it a practice of offering sacrifices to the Lord for, for specific reasons. But then he also offered sacrifices to the Lord with the thought that maybe my family has sinned against the Lord. And I don't even know it. So I'm going to offer sacrifices to the Lord in case we have sinned and we just are not aware of it. And the thing that I like about that is that Job didn't just presume innocence within himself and his family. He wanted to make sure God was honored in his life. He wanted to make sure God knew where he stood and how, how preeminent he was there. He didn't want to offend God and not do something about it. He was so humble, but he considered the providence of God in that. So Revelation does what a lot of people fail to do today, and that is tell it like it is. And that is that God judges sin. God judges sin. God rewards faith. God rewards righteousness, but God judges sin. Let me just give a controversial example of this. Might make you wiggle in your seat a little bit. Consider the AIDS epidemic that was rampant in the early 80s. I, I grew up with that. I was, a, I was a teenager when that hit and shook the world. It shook the globe. And the HIV virus, uh, virus was, was uh, wiping out gay men gay and bisexual 
men. They were just, people were die, dying by the droves. And so at first, people thought, well, this must be uh, the hand of God. This must be God's judgment against homosexuality because um, heterosexual people were 20 times less likely to contract this virus. It just seemed very pointed and obvious. But then there was this shift because all of a sudden we began to hear reports that innocent people, people that were not homosexuals or even children were contracting this disease and they were just dying from this virus. And so the shift took from, well, it can't be from God. It can't be because of sin if innocent children are dying from it. And it, it came at us or was reported strictly from a scientific approach about viruses and how they're spread and so forth. And I watched all this transpire. And so the commentary no longer took in the providence of God, though so other people might be thinking along those terms. But I saw that as a missed opportunity because the idea is that, well, this isn't a judgment because there's, if innocent people die, then it can't be a judgment for sin. And that that's wrong reasoning. Because we know in real life in the world that we live in, God judges sin and innocent people do die. When God judges others, there's consequences to sin. Our sin does not just affect us, it affects society. It's, it's cosmic treason against God in every area, in every molecule. It all plays a part. We are participants in this. And so we, we know that in Scripture, God often sends judgments in the form of war in the form of famine, in the form of disease. And it's not just the specific wicked individuals that committed those crimes or offenses that are wiped out. Innocent lives are lost because of our sins. Innocent lives are lost because of our offenses. In the Old Testament, you had the exiles. It was God's punishment, God's judgment against Israel First the northern kingdom, then the southern kingdom. They both rebelled against God, and he sent his prophets to them. But when they went into exile, it wasn't just the sinners that went into exile. It wasn't just the sinners of Israel that were ravaged by the Assyrians or the Babylonians. Innocent lives were taken. Even God's men, prophets, were taken into a foreign land. We suffer. We all suffer as a result of sin. So I see that as a faulty exclamation. Uh, explanation explanation of that and a lesson a moral lesson a spiritual lesson that we could have considered and grown in wisdom from but God is very much still active in the affairs of man and we can't always figure it out we don't know everything that God is up to but there are providential lessons to be learned through all of it. And our job is to act on what we do know. To act on what God is speaking in our hearts. And maybe it, needs, it, it might be that we need to repent. Or it might mean that we need to share the gospel. Or it might mean that we need to, more, to be more loving. Or kind or merciful like, his, like he is. But there's always a message. There's always things to be learned. When we look at the current events. What's happening out there. But also what's happening in here and we want to be humble about these things and may all of these events cause us to just look at God and seek God and endeavor to glorify him more 
And I like the phrase, let us believe in God more than answers. Because we don't have answers for all these things. I don't have answers for all the mysteries of Revelation. And I don't have answers for all the mysteries of why things happen the way they do around the world. But we are to believe in the God more than try to find or believe in the answers. Because God always gives us something to think about, something to act on in the big picture. I wanted to um, think about the providence of God and how important it is to report it. So if you've read U.S. history um, and you studied the Civil Wars, in the time before the Civil War and during the Civil War, you will find that much of the reporting and many of the writings considered absolutely the providence of God. Like you could barely read a document, a a historical document in that era that that did not consider the providence of God. And in that day, doing history properly involved considering the providence of God. It involved considering what is God saying to us? What is He communicating to us through these events? These thoughts and the people that he's raising up and the people that he is deposing. What is he saying? Is it simply for his display of glory? So there's a time in history where we wrestled with these kinds of things and we grew wiser, I think, and more prosperous as a result of it. At the end of the day, uh, this book, and particularly this chapter, will give us a profound theological perspective and hopefully a theological stirring about what fundamentally fundamentally what is propelling the world in the direction that it's going. And it affects us, and I hope that it will teach us. So let's look at our um, chapter this morning. That, as we think about um, chapter 12... I'm going to break it into three parts. We'll just touch on one of them this morning. But that is the grounds for the rage, because we heard about Satan's rage, the purpose for the rage, and the remedy for the rage of Satan. So with our our remaining time, let's look at what, what we might call the grounds for this rage that Satan has on the world. So our chapter opens with John's vision, and it's a sign, it's a heavenly sign that he sees, and it's of this woman, and this this woman is radiant, and she is with child, she is pregnant. We also see a sign, uh, by the way, a sign points to something, the sign is not the thing itself, so the sign is pointing to something, so this woman of radiance is pointing to something that God wants to say here. We also see uh, the dragon, and we also see the child. So we think about these major characters in this chapter. Uh, The dragon is clearly identified as a serpent, as Satan. I don't think there's any question with that. I think also as the son or the child that the woman's pregnant with is um, clearly Jesus, the Son of God. You know, he's He's going to rule the nations with a rod of iron. That's 
descriptive of who Jesus is. The question, I think, remains, who is the, the woman? Is the woman Mary if the child is Jesus, the Son of God? So let's think about this. She's clothed with the sun, which means she's radiant. She stands on the moon. Um, she has this crown of 12 stars on her head, which very likely represents all the people of God. That's one of those prominent themes in Revelation when you see uh, numbers of 12s. You have the 12 tribes and the 12 apostles and so forth. And it has a tendency to communicate this is all the people of God. This woman is with child. She is about to birth child. So who is this woman? Is it Mary? Well, if we read verse 5, we will assume that it's Mary because it says she gave birth to a male child who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. So obviously that would need to, to uh, based on that description, be Mary. But when you look at the rest of the chapter, it's like Mary as the mother of Jesus uh, becomes symbolic Mary as one person can no longer contain what God is communicating in this chapter. And Mary becomes symbolic of something, kind of she's outgrown this. Or, or the, the, the woman outgrows Mary would be better said. So we look at verse 17. The dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So whereas we start out thinking about Mary giving birth to Jesus, what we find out is that the woman in this passage, the sign, is really the church. Well, who are those that keep to the testimony? Who are those that obey the commands of God? They're the disciples of Christ. They're believers. It's the Christian community. And this woman has many offspring. Her offspring follow Christ. So the mother is the whole community of the saints covering both Old and New Testaments. So she's the mother. In the South we would say she's the mama of the church, the community of believers. And it's not unusual for Scripture to talk about the community of believers in terms of um, as a mother or as a woman. We see it in the book of Isaiah in Chapter 54, I'll just read one verse. Chapter 5. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth is the God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife, deserted and grieved in spirit. He goes on to say to Israel, who's being um, symbolically described as a woman, you will have many offspring. So many that you'll have to expand your borders and build more houses, basically. Now, when Paul quotes this passage in the New Testament in Galatians 4.26, here's what he says. The Jerusalem that is above is free, and she is our mother. So, in other words, the context of the idea is that God looks upon uh, the church as the mother. Like we have, the, our mother is the church, so to speak. The church is what nourishes me. The church is that place that I go in the people of God where, where I grow in Christ, where I exalt God and where I praise the Lord. So that's, this is what John, um, John's vision sees. It's not just birthing Christ. It's bigger than that. Literally, it's birthing the church. All of the offspring here. 
So the first sign is this mother who is in agony. And she is about to give birth to this wonderful thing of the Christ child, but also the church. But she's also in agony, not just because of the pain of childbirth, but she's in agony because of the dragon, the dragon harassing her. So let's look at the dragon now that we've looked at the woman. We know who the dragon is, verse 9. The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. You know, in Scripture, Satan also is, he is a real person, but he's also used symbolically in a bigger sense. Uh, he's called the dragon uh, and also Leviathan in the Old Testament. And both of those things represent something, and that is that they represent opposition to God. And so when there are forces in the Old Testament that oppose God and that oppose God's people, they're often called the dragon or Leviathan. So we see this in Psalm 74, Egypt is called Leviathan because they oppose God's people. It's also said about the Assyrians, it's said about the Babylonians, they captured God's people, they exiled God's people. They're called the dragon or Leviathan in Isaiah 27 and Ezekiel 29. The idea is that the person of Satan is behind all of this opposition, but it's being executed through other entities, through nations, through kings, through rulers, for, through any individual that opposes the work of God. Now let me give a practical example of how that happens and how incredibly subtle it is for someone to be actually opposing the kingdom of God in the unseen realm, the spiritual realm. And for that example, I'll go to the Apostle Peter. And this happened to the Apostle Peter. I don't know, what would we do without all the lessons from the Apostle Peter, both good and bad? I can identify with him very, very well. But something very interesting happens in Matthew 16. 16, the Apostle Peter confesses Christ. This is a monumental point in the story of redemption. Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I can almost read Peter's mind saying to himself, You mean I got one right? I got it right? Yes! Because how many times did Jesus rebuke the disciples? They just didn't understand. They just didn't get it. But he's on a spiritual high you might say. Now, in his mind, this came to his mind. This was his real thought. He reasoned through this. This wasn't Peter being a puppet. And he, he felt it. It was visceral. It was his reality. You are Christ. I've seen what you've done. I hear what you say. I've seen you face to face, and I have no doubt who you are. It all has lined up to me. So he's on this roll. And then Jesus, in the same passage, starts talking about the time to come where he will be persecuted by the priests and the rulers, and it will actually lead to his death. Well, that messed with Peter's head. That messed with the thoughts that it was having. It messed with his theology, and he says, this can't be. 
This can't be because his understanding of the Messiah that he just confessed is going to deliver the Jewish people. So this something isn't right with what Jesus is about, what Jesus is saying to him as Peter's theological wheels begin to turn. And so down in verse 22, And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. That quick. Same conversation. Peter went from this profound spiritual answer that God provided for him, but he owned it, it was his, it was his real thoughts, to now speaking for Satan or opposing the work of God. How can that happen? You see how subtle that is? Now this is, this is the world that we live in. And this happens to us. So does, what does this mean, get behind me, Satan? Does that mean um, Peter was literally possessed by Satan at that time? Was he contr- under the control and couldn't even help himself? Satan was speaking through him? I mean, if we wrestle through this, well, no. He is a disciple of Christ. He's still heaven-bound. He's forgiven. He's blood-bought. Or he will be when Jesus goes to the cross. But that's already predetermined, as we learned this morning in Sunday school. He's, he's called effectually. And so it's not that he is now Satan's worker. But what is pointed out here, and by the way, get away, I mean, um, get behind me means get away. And it's all the idea of being opposed to the work of God. His reasoning, his rationale, his thoughts actually oppose the work of God. It was wrong. And anything that opposes the work of God, Satan is behind it in some subtle way and that's the point he's not now living for Satan or worshiping Satan he still very much loves God but Satan that quick in the same conversation in the thoughts of his mind turned the tables the rock now became the stumbling block to the kingdom so you see how subtle that works you see how much you you, you, now you know why The Apostle Paul constantly tells us, be on guard. Guard your hearts. Guard your minds. Your thoughts are not always just your thoughts. There are other things, other entities, other ideas that come into our heads. So we see this very subtle, subtle dragon. The prince of the world. And what he's described as doing in this passage, it's, it's gruesome. It's very gruesome because you have this woman who is in agony and she's about to give birth and he is right there. He is right there but not to catch the baby. He is right there to devour the baby. He does not want the Messiah to be born. He does not want the one who will rule all the the nations with a rod of iron to be born. But he is born by God's providence and he's taken up He escapes the wrath of Satan. He's taken up to the throne room of God. So here's how we close all this. And here's where it really pertains to us. Because now Jesus isn't even on the scene anymore. And who's the object of Satan's wrath now? It's the offspring. It's the other believers. So Satan turns his attention here to these believers, the church, 
that is left exposed to his wrath. But what does she do? She flees, the church flees, and this is all symbolic, of course, flees into the wilderness, flees into the desert for safety, and God takes care of her there. Uh, the text says 1,260 days, which is three and a half years, which we now know of is a period of, of suffering that's cut short. It's a time of trial and tribulation that's cut short by God. So God keeps the clock of heaven, and we often don't get to peek at that. So what happens when she's in the desert? Well, she's cared for. She flees from the enemy and she's cared for, but she's still in the wilderness. So what happens here is that you have the same symbolism of what happened in real life with Israel when God set them free from Egypt and he called them to himself out into the wilderness, out into the desert to make them his people, to teach them what it means to give them his law and to show them how to behave, to show them how to think and how to properly love him and worship him. And all of that was done in the context of the ruggedness of the wilderness. Hunger pains and thirst and sun, cold, heat, all of this. So what you have here, what he's saying in this, in this uh, vision is that the church is in this place of being in the desert or the wilderness. We're not in the promised land yet. When the Lord returns, He'll take us home. Then we have reached the promised land. In the meantime, we are in the desert. And what happens in the desert is almost two opposing things. And one is that you become rugged. You live in a hard world. You live in a hard place. And you're going to face lots of trials and tribulations. So there's this spiritual ruggedness that we have to develop while we're in this world. But also, along with that harshness of the world that we live in, you have these incredible, special, intimate times with God. Israel was brought out into the desert so that God and His people could literally build a relationship, get to know each other properly. So in the midst of the, the having to meet uh, eat manna every day or the sun though there was a cloud and there was a fire God provided in all of this you had these intimate times you had miracles you had incredible displays of power and then you had the Shekinah glory of God there to always look to to know that he is with you so God is revealing himself he's caring for us the church he's protecting us and he is building a relationship in us, and he's preparing us for the promised land. But what that means, obviously, is that we can expect both extremes. We can expect the trials and the tribulations and the hardness and the ruggedness of the Spirit that God will build in us, but we can also expect the times of special intimacy where God will come to you in ways that will blow your mind. And often they're administered in times that are not administered when things are going so well. We get to know the God who's with us in the heat of the sun. We get to know the God who's with us when we, when we experience agonies and pain that we never experienced before. And God comes to minister to us. He, he brings the water out of the rock, so to speak. And He quenches our thirst in new ways, dynamic ways, special ways, relational ways. Because all of this is about God wanting our best 
for his greatest glory. And the two come to meet. So everything in our life is designed in such a way so that we will seek God, so that we will find God, and when you have found God, you have everything. May God bless the preaching of his word.